Hey everyone, before we start with today's episode, let's first take a moment to talk about the exciting news we got this week, which is the release date of the Ink Black Heart. We finally got word this week that the book will be released on August 30th, 2022. Woo! Yay! Yay! I am so excited. I am so excited too. And you can pre-order that on Amazon, wherever I've already pre-ordered the hardback and the ebook. I've pre-ordered the hardback. I have a saga with ebooks. Every time I pre-order them on Kindle and mm. every time they don't download at midnight and I'm like, where the hell is my book? So for the past two books, I've had to cancel my Kindle pre-order and go buy it on Google Books, who gives it to me immediately. So this year, mm. I'm just going to buy it on Google Books the day ahead of time. I pre-ordered my ebook on Apple. Oh, yeah. That's what I use for all my books. I mean, I can't be expected to wait until delivery. No, no that's madness. absolutely so we've got our Mm pre-orders seven months i know seven months may seem like a long time but the time in between the announcement and the release is always really exciting for me it is really exciting because in that time we still have yet to get the cover we still have yet to get the proper blurb i think there's Mm -hmm. like a one sentence blurb on there that's clearly just you know boilerplate It's like Carmen and Robin are entangled. It has the word wicked in it, which kind of caught my eye, but it's probably nothing. It just makes me think of the musical. Well, everything makes me think of the musical. It's one of my favorite things in the world. So I've never seen it. Anyway, we're also going to get in that time fun tidbits from Trouble Blood being filmed. So it's looking like we're in for another strike filled year. So I'm so excited. What are you guys most excited about? Because obviously the synopsis for me is. Oh, I'm so ready to freak out about the synopsis. Yeah, I can't wait. Also the cover though, because I'm a little intrigued. I don't know if it's just like a placeholder thing, but it looks like the text is blue in the Amazon pre-order. So I don't know. I'm very curious what the cover is going to look like. Another thing, I predict that this means that we might get Trouble Blood in August or at least before the 30th, right? Because it only makes sense to release that first and then get book six, right? Yeah, it seems like they would want to air the show first to build up the hype and then release the new chapter. So they show the old chapter, they release the new chapter. Yeah. I hate too much content squeezed together. I need it to be separate so I can fully digest. See, I'm the opposite. I love it. Yeah. I love getting it all together. It only like, like you said, increases my hype, increases my excitement for it. And I love getting to see the story told in a different way right before I jump into the book. So I'm excited about it. I I love the whole strike two month fest. Great. (laughs) Just a fest. I loved it. I was super excited when it happened in 2020. So I'm looking forward to it again. And it only makes sense. I mean, it does make sense. There's no way they're not going to take advantage of that. And clearly it works for people. And of course, there's also going to be people who don't read the books who watch it and think, oh, I really need to know what happens next. I'm and sure then, that oh, happens. Then there's time. a book out. Yeah. Yeah. That makes absolute sense. But yeah, stay tuned. We'll try to keep everyone updated as the news comes out. We hope that we'll get those things soon, the cover and the synopsis. And we can't wait to talk about that. We definitely cannot. Now let's roll on with the intro music.
Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Ken, and today, Lindsay Pools and I will be continuing our reread of The Cuckoo's Calling, covering chapters four through seven of part one. We'll be joined today by Sam, who you might remember from last season. Thanks for joining us, Sam. As always, please be aware that our discussion of The Cuckoo's Calling will reference the ending of this book, as well as the subsequent books in the series up to and including Troubled Blood. Before we get started, though, Lindsay wanted to mention a few things. Yeah, first, thank you to everyone for your excitement over The Cuckoo's Calling. I was a little unsure if people would be as interested in listening because, you know, it's an older book, but your enthusiasm and all your comments have been wonderful and encouraging. So thank you so much. But there are a few responses that we got that I wanted to read. First, the Lady Beatrice wrote in and part of her message said, I wanted to mention that your explanation of the word strike as a leveling stick also explains Lucy's nickname for him, Stick. I thought this was an interesting possibility. In my head, I've always thought that she was unable to pronounce strike when she was younger because those R's can be hard for kids. So Stick just stuck. I don't know. What do you guys think? That's sort of what I'd assumed as well. Although a bit weird that you'd be calling your sibling by their last name. That's what I was just thinking. Though I guess Cormoran is kind of a mouthful. Cormoran's even harder for a kid. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's possible that someone somehow told them both about the origin of his last name when they were very young and that Lucy found it so interesting that she used it as a nickname. Yeah, maybe, but it is a connection that I hadn't made. So it's interesting to think about. Mm, Definitely. Another one at Squirrel Wheel on Twitter, let us know that the Private Eye magazine is satire. And they said it running a column on the Icarus references would mean them noticing a pattern and gathering some quotes together to demonstrate how unoriginal the press are being. So that's really interesting. Thanks for letting us know that because it does change how I read it a little. So it's good to know. There is this stuff that only people in the UK would know, right? That we just would miss, I suppose. Sam, do you read Private Eye? I like satire and stuff. So I know about it. I've never really read it. I've got my dad annuals, you know, like the best of the year and that sort of thing. And it's basically just people taking like current affairs and then just like putting their own news twist on it. Some of them are really funny. Some of them are a little bit, maybe go a bit above normal people's heads. But I think some of it's quite funny. I think it's good. And lastly, a couple people pointed out that the numbers on his password are one, two, three in the show. But in the book, it's just 23, which is presumably his birthday. Yeah, I blame this on L and one looking so similar (laughs) because when you put more than one in a row, I'm not going to be able to read that word. As a web developer, any password that has one, two, three or any numbers in sequence (laughs) makes me cringe. So (laughs) no no comment here. (laughs) At least his password wasn't password, right? That's true. Yeah. Well, without further ado, let's get into this set of chapters. So we're going to start with chapter four. And I have to say, it's really weird not having epigraphs for each chapter. I've gotten so used to doing it with Troubled Blood and there's so much more sparse here. Like, I don't even think we have one epigraph in this whole episode. (laughs) Yeah, we don't. So the chapter opens up by saying that the men's conversation is growing louder and they can hear it in the outer office. It just makes me think of that part in Troubled Blood where Strike and Robin resolve their Ricci argument 
And Robin is very conscious of Pat in the outer office. Hmm. I wonder how many angry clients Robin has overheard. Probably oh, many. A lot. A lot. <laughs> I think it mentions in Silkworm, doesn't she, that she'd grown used to hearing outbursts and stuff. Yeah. Oh, and one guy almost had a, had a minor heart attack at one point. She heard from the <laughs> outer office. I remember that. When they do look for new premises, I think maybe better soundproofing might be high up on their priority list. Maybe. Yeah. I guess it would only be an issue if there's more than one client waiting, right? I don't mm-hmm. really think Pat. Pat's probably going to get used to that too. She probably wouldn't really care. Unless it's to judge strike about what they're fighting about. Totally would. It's so funny though, because how Robin is instinctively on Bristow's side, that's kind of like how Pat was. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately judging strike, taking the other person's side. Pat holds on to that for much longer. Yeah, she does. I don't think she'd be like that in the next book, but she's still funny. I was thinking they'd want the privacy for, you know, other reasons. Wink, wink. I can't even with you. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, surely not with Pat in the other room. I don't think we're going to find that in canon. I'm sorry. That's fair enough. We'll see. Well, this next bit here I find so cute because Robin is really going the extra mile trying to, you know, make it seem like she's been working for Strike this whole time. I really like this bit. Purely for her own amusement in the high spirits of this happy day, Robin had been trying to act convincingly the part of Strike's regular secretary and not to give away to Bristow's girlfriend that she had only been working for the private detective for half an hour. This is kind of our first hint that Robin is good at playing a character and that she likes playing a character. So she's getting amusement from just playing a different Robin here, right? Something to occupy herself. But I think there's a part of her that that might be a bit suppressed that is still very much enjoying this specific fantasy of being someone who's living a life that's a bit more dream adjacent. Yeah. And it's the life she's always secretly wanted. Yeah. It's got to be exciting. She does it a lot in this, though, doesn't she? Like um, when temporary solutions called to check up and when she's in Vashti it comes up a lot throughout the entire book she's so good at it something stuck out to me here that I'm going to say is a clue Robin is thinking about Bristow and Allison as a couple and it says Robin found it endearing that Bristow who on the evidence of his smart suit and his prestigious firm could have set his sights on somebody much prettier had chosen this girl who she assumed was warmer and kinder than her appearance suggested I think this is put in here to emphasize the reveal we get at the end that Bristow is only dating her for an alibi. So it's pointed out here to us that they might be a sort of odd couple, at least by Robin's observation, but we don't find out why until the very end. I would agree that this is a little hint and that maybe the reader is supposed to remember this later on when we find out Allison isn't actually much warmer or kinder than she comes off. I also like this little glimpse of Robin's tendency to think the best of people. I think that maybe by the time of Trouble Blood, she's become a teensy bit more cynical. Robin is thinking about Lula and wonders why the death of someone you never met can affect you so much. It's an interesting question, especially because, I mean, there have been a few recent celebrity deaths that have made me feel quite sad over the last few weeks. It's just interesting. In a couple chapters, Strike thinks about how he's never been able to understand the assumption of intimacy fans felt with those they have never met. There's an actual term for that, a parasocial relationship. It's sort of the result of a fan's mediated encounters with figures in mass media. So we have so many interactions with them that we come to feel an intimacy and friendship that isn't actually real or reciprocal. Okay. Yeah. So it's a real thing. I think there's like a kind of safety in these relationships because like we get to experience what feels like intimacy, but we don't actually have to be vulnerable ourselves. We don't have to open up. We don't have to risk rejection. 
saying that, I'm not sure the extent to which parasocial relationships become like primary relationships is super healthy. Look at me and my parasocial relationships with these fictional characters. For instance, I definitely feel like Robin and Corman and I are best friends. Of course. Well, obviously. It's interesting, though. I mean, we all email people at work and stuff day in, day out. You may never actually meet these people or even see them. But Mm -hmm. even just from, hi, how are you? Can you do this or whatever? You do develop a relationship with these people without actually being with them and seeing them and stuff. So I I get that. That's interesting. That's really cool. I think I would feel more comfortable speaking to a celebrity that maybe posts more on social media or who's in the media more than someone who doesn't or isn't. Because you'd already feel like. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see why that would exist with Lula because she was everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Strike wouldn't understand that, though, because I'm sure he's probably had people his whole life coming up to him going like, oh, you're Johnny Rokeby's son. Yeah. He's been on the other side. Just one other thing about this part. Robin also says that she had admired Lula's looks because she didn't like her own milkmaid coloring. It just stands out to me because in Lethal White, Charlotte points out that Strike has always liked women with that coloring. So something that Robin doesn't necessarily like (laughs) about her own appearance is something that Strike does like. This is, I think, the first place that something comes up that I've been wondering about with the timeline of these books. And I just want to see if other people are wondering about this too. Okay. So it seems like Robin, as of three months ago, she's 25, was still living with her parents in Massam. I'm just wondering what has she been doing in that chunk of time between her agoraphobia resolving and a month ago when she moved to London. So I assume she must have been working But we never really get any specifics. If Matthew's been in London this whole time, why didn't she move in with him sooner? If he's been out of school and living somewhere else until recently, then where? Well, we do know from Troubled Blood that Robin said that she paid for things while Matthew was still in school and wasn't working, and she was. But we don't know how long Matthew is living in London, do we? No. Because he he could have been still in Massim as well, and then just moved to London and planned for her to follow him once he got settled or something. That's kind of what I've assumed yeah i guess it's possible i don't think we do know how long he'd been in there when she says in trouble blood that she paid for things like dates and stuff i assumed they were living in the similar area i assumed she'd paid for her train tickets and then dates but like he finishes accountancy school and then just goes back to massam maybe he could have gotten a job temporarily before he moved it would seem like he might need to save up some money to move i suppose this next bit is really funny robin's saying that strike is one of the best detectives because she can see how judgmental allison is being is giving me life because that is the flicker of the real robin coming through there and i just love it and it says it's prompted by her own self-respect rather than a desire to protect strike which is funny because we know later that she's accused a couple times of being very protective of him or defensive yeah she is she's about to spend the next few years defending her choice to stay and her choice of work so it's not surprising to see this flicker of pride here i feel like the character that she's playing right now like her fantasy living the dream robin would never work for a second-rate detective. Of course, she's going to work for the best. But I'm sort of remembering that she doesn't even know that she's going to get to stay forever and that she's going to be one of the best herself. It is very nice to think about how she says he's one of the best here, but she doesn't know it's true. When you think about how often he (laughs) says that about her, and it's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't know that he is actually like the literal best. This next thing that she does, she slit open a pink kitten embellished envelope with the air of a woman who daily dealt with exigencies 
much more complex and intriguing than Allison could possibly imagine. I just, I love it. I wonder how well Robin managed to conceal her reaction when she actually read what was on the envelope because it's a literal death threat. Did she keep her cool? Did she let that emotion show on her face? I'm just curious. It kind of also makes me think of how in the previous chapter, Strike gives the air off of someone who, you know, can't be bothered with laundry. Oh, yeah, yeah, And and here she's kind of doing the same thing. Even from this first part, they are similar. We've come to one of my favorite parts in this book. Ken, do you want to read the quote? Oh, of course. This is one of my favorite parts, too. All I want, Strike, said Bristow hoarsely, the color high in his thin face, is justice. He might have struck a divine tuning fork. The word rang through the shabby office, calling forth an inaudible but plangent note in Strike's breast. Bristow had located the pilot light Strike shielded when everything else had been blown to ashes. So this is the number one reason for me why Strike is a Hufflepuff. I agree with you. Yeah. The fact that he values justice above what seems to be everything else just that is it for me. You guys know much more about this than I do, and you have way more debates about it than me. I always thought he was a Gryffindor. I'll be perfectly honest. You're not alone. But that's based on nothing but, you know, not just that that sentence, but him as a person, the things that he does and why he does them. That's what my opinion on that has always been based on. But feel free to insult me and to kick me from, <laughs> <laughs> kick me from the chat. I won't mind. We'll let it slide this one time. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how I look at sorting people or, or myself. I think that strike, like many of us has the qualities of all the houses really. So Mm -hmm. he definitely has traits of Gryffindor. So he's brave and chivalrous. Right. But I think he's also cunning and ambitious. I mean, they might not be the kinds of ambitions that Greg wants for him, but he has his own ambitions. Right. And he certainly seeks knowledge and likes to solve things. So I think he has the traits of all the houses, but it's this line for me right here that tells me what drives him. So it's not so much just what you are, but what means the most to you. And that's why I agree that he's a Hufflepuff. There's also an interview with JK Rowling where she talks about the battle of Hogwarts and how the Gryffindors all stayed at the end. Some of them wanted to do the right thing, but some of them were showboating. Mm. And she also said that the Hufflepuff stayed for a different reason. That really makes me think of doing the right things for the right reasons. So it's oh. another check mark in the strike category for me. Yeah. I wouldn't even put him as Gryffindor next. I think the next one, if Hufflepuff was off the table, is Ravenclaw for sure. There's a line later on in like the next chapter where he's thinking about Charlotte and he's like, how could he the person who always needed to know the truth to find the answers or something, which is very Ravenclaw. So for me, it would go Hufflepuff and then Ravenclaw. Interesting. You guys know much more about it than I do by far and away. So you're teaching me, I think. I'm sure that a lot of people are going to not like this because there's, you know, a lot of Hufflepuff hate. You convinced me. Your argument convinced me. I'm now on team Hufflepuff as well, even though I'm annoyed about it because I don't like having my mind changed by good arguments. But you did. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Well, you did. I'm still on Robin Team Ravenclaw, though, 100% all the way. Yeah. That would, yeah. that makes sense. But no, strike justice, the pilot light. It's fair. Besides that, this is one of my favorite parts because of how much it tells us about strike as a character. Yeah. That last sentence there, the pilot light he shielded when everything else was blown to ashes. Mm-hmm. It tells us just how important this is to him. So, Seeing that in Strike is part of what makes me like him so much as a character. I just really, really love this line. And I love that we're 
just starting to embark on all of these books where we get to watch and pursue the very thing that drives him so much. It's really wonderful. Oh, that is lovely thought. And that's so true. Yeah. A lot to be said for doing the right thing for the right reasons, isn't there? Yeah. And he's going to get so much justice for so many different people. It's funny that what Bristow was actually here looking for was injustice. He was trying to frame an innocent man and make sure that the money was secure so he could cover up his crimes. But Strike being powered by that pilot light, he finds justice anyways. It's justice prevailing and good winning over evil. It doesn't always happen in the real world, but it's nice to be able to read about it happening here, isn't it? Yeah. One last thing about this part. I was actually just talking to a friend, Kurt, about it the other day, and he said that this line is another theme connecting Cuckoo's Calling to Troubled Blood. So is that fate versus accident or clairvoyance versus team rational? Bristow said the exact right thing at the exact right moment that allowed Strike to take the case. And I think that's so spot on and completely fits with the magic and fateful feeling of these first few chapters. Yeah. Sorry to devolve into strike thirst, but we get this insight. Sorry, into- Sam. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's we're just gonna need a moment. We've been so good up until this point. I just need a second. I haven't been. And I I think Lindsay's got a bit of you know soul brain thirst going on with the Hufflepuff bit as well. Cause we all know that's very sexy that he's <laughs> so justicey. You guys dive into this strike swimming pool. It's all good. Yeah. (laughs) Lindsay might be a bit more subtle about the thirst, but it's here. Anyway, so diving into the Olympic-sized swimming pool, I just want to say that his competency here where he's describing his process, his investigative process, is super sexy. By nature, methodical and thorough, Strike had been trained to investigate to a high and rigorous standard. First allow the witness to tell their story in their own way. The untrammeled flow often revealed details, apparent inconsequentialities that would later prove invaluable nuggets of evidence. Once the first gush of impression and recollection had been harvested, then it was time to solicit and arrange facts rigorously and precisely. People, places, property. In later books, this is described as people, places, things, isn't it? Every time he thinks about this, it's things instead. So I wonder why she changed it. Because the three Ps seems like a really handy mnemonic to me. Oh, and we know, too, that he's been passing this rigorous training that he's had on to Robin. Because she thinks about the same people, places, things in Troubled Blood. I just really like thinking about him as a mentor, guiding, teaching, supporting, sharing his wisdom. With the person who loves justice as much as he does. It's really interesting to first see how he starts an investigation. And I remember being impressed because I was comparing it to my boss, (laughs) which is less (laughs) impressive. I'm curious if this is just how J.K. Rowling imagines conducting an investigation or if she spoke with someone who gave her advice. You know, is there a real life detective out there who said means over motive, Joe? I think I remember reading somewhere that she had a friend or maybe numerous friends that were in SIB that so she has people to consult. I have no idea where the exact quote is, but I was looking around on the internet and I saw from an article that was on the Robert Galbraith website um, that was talking about the person who was coaching Tom Burke to kind of walk and act appropriately as an amputee. But Mm -hmm. they did have a little blurb that, you know, she had people that she spoke to. Interesting. It'd be another thing I'd love 
love to ask her because I'd love to know those kind of behind the scenes things. Yeah, I'm certain that part of her research for these books would have been interviewing investigators in the military and the police um, and seeing how they do it. Going back to Bristow, it's also important to note that Strike thinks about how letting someone just tell their story can often reveal things they don't know that they're revealing. So how do we think Bristow reveals himself here? Mm. (laughs) Sorry. No, sorry, I just thought of <laughs> like it. Not in a criminal way, <laughs> just in a... <laughs> I, I think that his body language has some giveaways. So the one I'm thinking of, his right knee started jiggling up and down again, and his knobble-knuckled hands washed each other in dumb show, which makes me think of Lady Macbeth, and like so specifically Lady Macbeth with, you know, out-damned spot. that got to be deliberate. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, I agree. And then the end, when he's talking about what happened on that night, little bits of his phrasing, like they all drifted away, referring to the paparazzi, and it was a bitterly cold night. To me, that sounds like a descriptive accounting of someone who actually witnessed this and was there rather than just recounting facts that come out in inquest. But I could be seriously reaching with that. It might be reaching, but I think it's an okay reach because if you weren't out in the cold, you might say something like it was supposed to be a bitterly cold night. Or they said it was bitterly cold. So I can see your point that he had firsthand knowledge of how cold it was. Yeah, makes sense to me. Next, Strike begins to take Bristow's statements on what happened the last time Bristow saw his sister. Yeah, Bristow tells quite a few lies here, doesn't he? So I just want to point them out so that we can keep them in mind as we continue to read. His biggest lie, I think, is that he left after their argument. But he also lied about what they argued about and that they made up afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then going back to the office to get the files and spending the day with his mother is also a lie. Makes me really wonder how much he rehearsed this meeting. Oh, I hadn't thought about that before. Telling his story in the mirror, trying to get the tears right. That's yeah. a fun scene to think about. I'd say quite a lot. If you know that it was you, you've got to know it inside out, haven't you? Exactly. There's no way you wouldn't have, have rehearsed that because the slightest little thing and then you've done yourself, haven't you? But then again, you don't want to sound rehearsed. So maybe it's like a method acting thing where he like forces himself to, I am not the guy who killed my sister. Well, they say that the easiest lies are based on the truth, aren't they? So when it most of it did actually happen, it's easier to lie rather than if he was just making up the entire thing. And he would have had to tell the story frequently at the time when the police asked him, right? And yeah. strikes often notice that after time goes by, people remember what they told the police and just do it again. So maybe it would have not rung any alarm bells if that was the case. Mm-hmm. Is a little bit easier this time. Mm-hmm. So at one point, Bristow mentions Lula having issues with being adopted and with being black in a white family. Do we think he's subtly trying to point strike in the direction of Lula's birth family by being so frank about this? That's possible. But actually, Sam, what you just said about having truths within a lie is kind of how I read this, because it kind of implies that he was being too hard on her. So I think that those are the kinds of things that he put in as truths to make his lie more believable. It's also something that Strike would have found out probably by himself anyway. And if he didn't mention it, that would only make it all more suspicious. And it's just also lucky because it's exactly where he wants Strike to go. So he's being honest and, you know. It fits his narrative. Yeah. Speaking of luck, Strike chancing his luck by asking for a quarter of the fee in cash and then being staggered when Bristow agrees to it. 
He really is having the hell of a lucky morning, yeah. isn't he? Like, yeah. he doesn't know it, but his luck has turned around at this point. It's so funny to me. Well, not even funny. It's satisfying to think that this man is so arrogant that he thinks that he can kill multiple people and pay to frame someone else. But what he's really doing is paying strike to take him down. It's so <laughs> good. <laughs> I bet it really stings while he's in a jail cell at night that he probably could have gotten away with it had he not gone that extra step. I just love that bit of poetic justice. All right. Should we go on to chapter five? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I really love the opening of this chapter when strike says, why are you a temp and her reaction? Because it's just the beginning of five years of misunderstandings where he thinks the world of her, but she's wondering what she did wrong. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> You're so right. Cause she's suspicious. She's like, what do you mean? Cause he's trying to say something nice, Robin. He is trying really hard to get them on like a, a better footing than they started off with though. Isn't he? So he thanks her. He compliments her. And then he apologizes for calling her Sandra too bad. It's immediately ruined. Yeah. He kind of, Promptly sticks his foot in his mouth. Robin, he repeated, that'll be easy to remember. He had some notion of making a jocular allusion to Batman and his dependable sidekick, but the feeble jest died on his lips as her face turned brilliantly pink. Too late, he realized that the most unfortunate construction could be put on his innocent words. He was doing so good. He was. He was trying so hard and he was making progress. And then he immediately puts both feet, both false and real, into his mouth. <laughs> now, I know a lot of people don't get the joke on this. And I didn't either for such a long time. I had to have somebody British explain it to me. Now, apparently, the unfortunate construction is referring to a Robin Redbreast, which is, you can feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a beloved bird in England, as I understand it. Yeah. And could also be applied to what just happened and... God. It's a case of think before you speak there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I remember when someone finally explained this in our Twitter chat and it all made sense because I didn't get it either. I thought that Robin took this as some sort of bad attempt at flirting, like, oh, you'll be easy to remember. But this makes a lot more sense. I love that the actual joke that he was intending was to say that he's Batman. <laughs> he is Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that the misunderstanding doesn't make him come off better than instantly turning to a new secretary and saying, I'm Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's kind of funny and definitely better than referencing red breast. Well, yeah, in fairness. I do wonder how Robin resolves this in her own head, though, because at some point she must have realized that he probably didn't mean that, right? She must have, although I don't know that she would have known what he was getting at. She wouldn't have known that he was going for Batman. Surely. No, of course. No amount of imagination could make that leap. But no, I, I would love for them to have a funny little conversation about this moment one day where she's like, what were yeah. you thinking? And that he's like, great. I was thinking I'm Batman. Like <laughs> <laughs> the next line, though, is so funny, too. In one frozen moment of mutual mortification, the room seemed to have shrunk to the size of a telephone kiosk. Right, that, isn't it? And then there's his moving crabwise towards the yeah. door. Yeah. He's just afraid so like to move. Edging, <laughs> keeping the greatest distance possible from her against back against the wall. Oh, it's so good. In a yeah. way, it's almost nice that they had this death threat to kind of take them out of this awkward mess. Yeah. If they hadn't had the death threat, would they have been able to face each other the next day? <laughs> 
I found honestly that pretty funny too, because she's like, it's not funny. It's a death threat, she said. And Strike realized why she had placed it with its envelope in the plastic pocket. Aww. It's so cute that he's mildly touched by that. I didn't think that we'd still be talking about the death threats and the nutter draw, you know, five books on. I thought it would just been like this reference and then that would have been it. But no, it's carried all the way through, which actually mm-hmm. I really like. He's so disappointed. No one's going to fingerprint them. She's probably imagining them calling the police and having to give a statement and it all being very exciting. But this is also a first mention of somebody who actually ends up becoming important later. Oh, you mean the death threat guy? Because they use him. Yeah. Clues. This might be absolute nonsense and it probably is. But the death threat is on this pink paper and Strike says he thinks he's throwing me off by using that paper. And we're seeing this at the same time that Strike is first noticing her engagement ring. So I just wonder if there's something like the illusion of something pretty covering up something that's bad. Does that make sense? It's a really interesting thought. The pink and the kittens reminded me first of Dolores Umbridge. Oh, yeah. Because it seems like this sort of overly cutesy aesthetic is definitely one that Rowling associates with menace. With the point you made, it's interesting that Strike later views that ring as something that's actually protecting him from the threat of being too close to Robin. Which is also ironic because it's the very thing that does allow him to get close to her. And then eventually he hates seeing it and her putting the ring back on threatens their relationship and their working together and everything. I also love that he's mildly touched by how serious she's taking it because had this been Matthew, I think he probably would have laughed at her. But Strike is touched by her concern and he's amused by her disappointment. I think it's safe to say that he immediately likes her. Yeah, her impersonal concern for his safety. I suppose here she's just demonstrated that she's someone who cares about other people, even when they're strangers. In these short opening scenes in the office, he witnesses so much of what he comes to love about Robin, her empathy, her efficiency, her cleverness, her concern. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that he does like her pretty much immediately. Because I'm five years old, this next bit makes me laugh. The pressure in his guts was becoming painful, but he felt that her efficiency and her impersonal concern for his safety entitled her to some consideration. (laughs) Look, I mean, obviously he made the right choice here, right? This would not have helped made a better first impression. Such a male thing, isn't it? But like, (laughs) good call. I still jokingly say... That this is J.K. Rowling's response to everyone who complained that Harry never went to the bathroom in seven books. So she's like, fine, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) In fairness, they did go to a lot of bathrooms. It was just to brew potions and shoot curses at Malfoy, etc. Next, I love the description when we're encountering the Tottenham for the first time. And just the way that it's described really makes it seem like a place of safety and order. The ornate Victorian face of the Tottenham pub rose up behind the rubble and roadworks and Strike, pleasurably aware of the large amount of cash in his pocket, pushed his way through its doors into a serene Victorian atmosphere of gleaming scrolled dark wood and brass fittings, its frosted glass half partitions, its aged leather banquettes, its bar mirrors covered in gilt, cherubs and horns of plenty, spoke of a confident and ordered world that was in satisfying contrast to the ruined street. This really makes me want to visit the Tottenham the next time that I'm in London, though I think that it's called the Flying Horse now. Yeah, and I think that change, if I'm not mistaken, was around 2014 or 15. It makes me wonder if it'll be mentioned at all. I actually went to that pub when I was on my honeymoon. We went to London for it. I can confirm that it's a lovely pub. 
and I made my husband try the Doom Bar and he was a big fan. But on a textual note, so I love these glimpses that we get into the kinds of spaces that Strike finds comfortable and appealing, his aesthetic, I guess, because clearly a sense of history and tradition appeals to him. And I'm, I'm like, there's probably a psychological reason for that. The sense yeah. of continuity and stability, the idea that it's been there before him and it'll continue to be after. I agree. It's really interesting. And I do like that he finds comfort in these kinds of things. Yeah. So while he's at the Tottenham, we get our first descriptions of Charlotte from Strike's point of view. And so now Strike's thoughts swarmed back to Charlotte, who is indubitably real, beautiful, dangerous as a cornered vixen, clever, sometimes funny, and in the words of Strike's very oldest friend, fucked to the core. And it's Polworth saying that. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's Polworth. Yeah. It's classic <laughs> him. But we don't find out that he's not even named until much later. And the one thing that I find really great about the beginning of this book is that it does have so many references to people that we won't meet until later but who are actually yeah. really important to strike into the story because shanker is mentioned in this chapter too right i just think it's even more evidence of how carefully rolling plans her stories and builds her worlds i agree absolute genius there's this minor detail while he's thinking about charlotte that i had forgotten about and it's that whenever he left charlotte this was the first time in their entire relationship the other times that it had happened it was charlotte who had left and that there was an unspoken sort of awareness and agreement between the two of them that if he was the one that left that it would be permanent the fact that he's now left is very significant and just really he's not made for permanence he's never the one that leaves but he's not built for permanence yeah on the one hand it does show that he's a man built for permanence because he's stuck by her through things that he shouldn't have but on the other hand it's sad for the very same reason i also think it speaks to the permanence of his decision that it wasn't something he took lightly and that he also understood that this time it had to be permanent i think it's interesting that way of thinking is also also taken on by lucy because i think when we first meet her and then i think they're talking in the office or something and then lucy she goes off on her um not rant but (laughs) yes rant it's very rant rant like yeah and then and then strike says oh no i left her and that's like oh well good and that's kind of accepted from her as well as from him this line about strike not knowing anyone with such an appetite for revenge as charlotte totally gives me the heebie-jeebies this makes me kind of scared for what might happen in the future this is the one line that still makes me a little bit wary about whether or not she'll come back in the future in a much darker way yeah it's something to keep an eye out on right i know i'm one of the few who kind of think it's possible that charlotte just needs to be resolved for robin at this point but i can't deny that there are things like this that suggest that she might play a bigger scarier role at some point the fact that she's shown herself willing to resort to violence against either herself or or others and when i say violence i don't necessarily mean like physical violence but she doesn't have any qualms about hurting other people like you know with getting engaged well getting engaged to jago and whatnot yeah i mean she physically hurt strike so but yeah just the fact that she's willing to resort to, to that to get back at strike makes me very wary of what we might see from her in the future i still think you know i'm one of the people who think that charlotte's desire for revenge hasn't been played out yet the years to come here is pretty telling foreshadowing because really her revenge she gets she gets engaged in a couple weeks she gets married in a few months you know that year-long appetite that he's describing that he knows exists i don't think is quite finished manifesting i guess my feeling is that there's a possibility there won't be this dramatic and scary conclusion to charlotte because i did feel a certain sense 
of things being final in trouble blood, but it's possible that I'm just feeling that on strike side. Mm -hmm. I just wouldn't be surprised if it didn't happen, even though I agree there are signs that it could. I do also wonder if some of it could be an unreliable narrator thing, because he also thought that his belongings would be ruined, that she'd be waiting for him in her flat. And those things didn't happen. Of course, she could have just been preoccupied with plotting her better revenge of Jago. But my point is that some of the things he thought would happen didn't. Mm, that's a good point. I just think there has to be an end for her somewhere. So eventually she's either going to stop or she's going to die. Yeah. yeah. I think that on strike side, there's absolutely, as you said, there's a sense he's emotionally done with this. He's he's moving on. He's closing that door. But it's hard to predict what Charlotte will do because that kind of personality type, he is her obsession. I don't think she's going to give up. Violence is the only thing that she hasn't resorted to yet. She's tried hurting him emotionally in all of the ways that she knows how to. You know, she's tried to commit suicide. She's threatened to commit suicide. She's hurt him in all of these emotional ways. Getting engaged to Jago and then getting married, having babies, all of these things that, you know, she thought would hurt. And he still hasn't come back to her. I think that violence is the only thing that she hasn't resorted to since they've broken up. I just feel like for those type of people in my experience, if she's not getting back what she's wanting at some point, it's not going to be fun for her. It's not going to matter anymore. So there has to be an end point for her and him not caring. That's what I mean by it feeling final because him not caring completely removes that for her. It removes her power. So if she has no power, what does she have left to play with? Hmm. We'll have to wait and see. I do agree with you, Pools, something that you said previously that if it does happen, we probably won't see it in the next book. Mm-hmm. If we're right and book seven deals with solving Leda's murder, it would make sense to also finally solve the Charlotte problem once and for all to kind Mm -hmm. of mirror Leda and really close the chapter on his past traumas. I think she'll lie low for a bit. She'll be a bit stymied by the uh, lack of access. We'll have to see. I could could go either way on this. I could agree with you that she's just going to get bored. I don't know. I am excited to find out. Anyway, so he's not just spending all this time in the pub drinking and thinking about Charlotte. He actually gets right to work on the case as well. And he makes three phone calls, one to Anstice, one to Wardle, and one to Shanker. So here in, in one short scene, we're introduced to three new characters who all become recurring useful sources of information for Strike. I mean, even though Shanker doesn't actually get named to career of evil, I think we're all agreed that that's Shanker on the phone, right? Oh yeah, of course. It's also interesting to me that Shanker is introduced to us in almost the same way that Sirius is. So briefly mentioned in the first book and then seen again in three and five with three in particular more backstory. I'm still not feeling particularly safe just because Shanker made it out of book five, but yeah, it's certainly interesting. I wouldn't feel safe either. (laughs) And also Wardle, he just kind of annoys me in this chapter. Why does he annoy you? Because he's just so full of himself. Like everything is a joke. It's not how I would first present myself if I was talking to someone for the first time. Just very arrogant. I always took it as, you know, he's a, a proper detective if you want quote and working for the police and then you know this private detective comes kind of out of nowhere and wants to get invited to the party yeah you might be right maybe there's a bit of defensiveness on his part which would make sense if someone was trying to take over your case yeah i guess kind of trying to rebuff him a little bit and belittle i guess yeah that's a good point that's how i read it anyway it's kind of a dude thing too to be more antagonistic or more confrontational or, or less nice when you're being introduced to someone, isn't it? 
not always, but... I guess if you see someone as being a bit of a threat or whatever, yeah, I guess so. Could be wrong about that, but it is clear that Wardle does love himself as Anstis uh, says oh, yeah, he does. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But he's still better than Carver. <laughs> not that Definitely. that's a high bar to clear. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Strike is thinking about how he used to be able to get witnesses and get the information that he needs anytime that he wanted, like when he was in SIB. And now he's he was a, a limping man in a creased shirt trading on old acquaintances, mm-hmm. trying to do deals with policemen who once would have been glad to take his calls. I remember J.K. Rowling talking about how making him a private detective strips away all his access to things like witnesses or forensic analysis and lets her be able to focus on kind of that good old-fashioned detective work. I think it's one of the reasons why these books work so well and are so good because they don't have that CSI effect. And Mm -hmm. everything they do get, they have found ways to make it work and it's because they're putting in the effort. And, you know, they don't solve things by sending it off to the lab. It's just much more interesting to read. Um, So Strike sees this as as a disappointing change in his life, but Mm. I enjoy it as a reader. (laughs) It is an effective plotting tool. (laughs) He's doing a bit of wallowing in self-pity in this section, which is very uncharacteristic of him. As Robin later notes, he doesn't do self-pity often. But I feel like if anyone's entitled to a bit of this at the moment, it's him. Because as he describes all his shit, he is really at rock bottom here. I do find it kind of odd that he says he would have no alternative but to sleep rough which I'm fairly certain means actually sleeping outdoors. We know he has family and friends in London. He's got a loving aunt and uncle in Cornwall that he could stay with while he looks for work. So I know that these options would be a huge wound to his pride and they would range from slightly annoying to enormously annoying if we're talking about staying with Lucy and Greg. Yeah, that's a big no. (laughs) Yeah, but surely even that's better than literally sleeping on the streets, right? So is he just catastrophizing because he's so miserable here? I I think so. I thought it could be a sign that he's been really distanced from his social circle by his relationship with Charlotte, because I think he is distanced by that. Yeah, I agree. This always stood out to me as well. And I think both of the things you suggested could be true. Mm -hmm. I think it's also possible that he's very likely depressed here. Yeah. And we can call it catastrophizing or or anything, but I think that feeling of hopelessness and not seeing a way out is fairly common when you're depressed, mm. even when it's not true. So I think that because it's not the truth, it could be a way for J.K. Rowling to convey to us as readers how much despair he's feeling and just how much he's suffering yeah. and how difficult it is for him to see a way out of his situation right now. Yeah, I totally agree that it does really convey his despair at this moment. On a completely separate note, is this chapter the first mention we get of him having a prosthetic leg? I think it is. Because it comes up because he's resting his prosthetic on the the metal bar. I wish I could remember my first reactions to this, if I had one. I remember first reading it and getting to this point and reading that bit and then not really taking it in. I was like, oh, did I read that right? And then went back Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh... Yeah, okay. But then I kind of forgot about it again until it was mentioned. Then eventually it just became part and parcel of his character. I don't think I really took it in properly. I love that aspect of his character and how it affects the books and how she portrays someone living with a disability and just, you know, getting on with it, but it it having impact on his life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it works really well. I think he's a good character. No way, really? Such a surprise. (laughs) Spoiler alert, we all like him. (laughs) (laughs) All right, chapter six. 
And we go back to Robin. Always love hearing about Robin. Of course. Yeah, she's talking about the news of her engagement, which she says was received by her friends with either squeals of excitement or envious comments, which gave Robin equal pleasure. I know a lot of people wonder where all these quote-unquote friends went, and I'm inclined to think that all of these people, or at least most of them, are people that she met through Matthew. That's probably some of it. I don't think this is as odd as other people do. I mean, I have friends who I would call with big news, but I don't necessarily talk to them all the time or see them often. I have always thought that at least one of these friends with big quotation marks there is Sarah Shadlock, because if there is one time in her life that Robin is going to reach out to Sarah Shadlock and pretend that the friendship that they have is actually real, I think it would be to share the news that Matthew proposed. And I think Sarah's envious comments are the ones that might give her pleasure to know. I know that it's petty and maybe, maybe I'm way off base, but I'm still convinced. Charlie is so-called Katie. And she's only just moved to London. Like she could still be in touch with friends in Yorkshire that she later drifts away from, right? Yeah. I also think it's possible that her own friends back home, that she could have drifted away from them while she was recovering from what happened. But again, it wouldn't seem odd to me for her to call them here. All right, so next we have a mention of some office supplies that Robin believes were stolen while Strike was in the army. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, when did he decide to take them? Is this, was this like a, a plan over time? Like once he decided he was going to make his own agencies, like slowly pilfering notebooks and stuff? Was it one big heist? <laughs> yeah, you know, I accidentally ended up with a lot of supplies from previous jobs. Like I just don't mean it to happen. So I wonder if this kind of happened like, was he taking them home or did he do it on purpose? And if so, how long was he thinking about starting the agency? And was this like prep for it? You know what? I was never curious about this before, but I sure am now. I'd say defo on purpose. Could he have grabbed them on his way out? How does leaving the army work? Do you go to put in your resignation to the office and have access to the store cupboard? I'm very curious now and I need to yeah. know how he handled the theft of these notebooks and how that squares with his moral compass as well. Stealing from... The government? Her Majesty's <laughs> Army? Well, I think you hand in your notice and then it's it's a month and then you finish. So you've got a month to think, well, I'm short of pens. Oh, and I need some notebooks. So, you know, like one a week or something yeah, like that. Yeah. It starts off small. I think when you start stealing <laughs> monitors, you yeah, know, yeah. chairs and stuff. That probably crossed the line for him, right? Yeah. You can't fit a chair up your jumper, but you can fit a notebook <laughs> up your jumper. So, well, then he must have been back in the office after he lost his leg, right? For that to be the case. He well, you have to clear, you have to clear your desk and things, don't you? And sort that sort of stuff out. So that's when I thought, oh, he must have got hold of them then. Yeah, he must have been thinking about what he wanted to do. Yeah. yeah. This also might be nonsense, but I do like the contrast of Robin thinking they have an air of officialdom. While in the last chapter, Strike is feeling a little bummed over his loss of an official status. It just gives me the impression of the thing that he's worried that he's lost that she sees in him. I don't know, am I way off? Are they just notebooks? Or... <laughs> notebook is never just a notebook. I get the sense that Robin is sort of demonstrating a bit of her detective instinct here. So she's like putting together little bits and pieces about Strike's personality and history by exploring his office and doing a little snooping. I, I mean, I would do it too. <laughs> As I would. <laughs> she's certainly curious about him. And it makes sense because he's living kind of her fantasy job, right? Yeah. And she must. She must be wanting to find out whatever she can. Yeah, definitely. Next, we get an introduction to some of Strike's many nicknames. Augie and Monkey Boy uh, are the ones that are mentioned here. And I'm thinking Augie might be Nick, 
But who's mm-hmm. calling him Monkey Boy? Is it Hardacre or somebody else? Before we get to Monkey Boy, it makes sense that it would be Nick because doesn't Spanner later say that they've been trying to reach him? Mm-hmm. That yep. Nick and Elsa have been trying to call him. So that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody said that people in the Royal Military Police are called monkeys as kind of a derogatory term. And that that might have been where it comes from. Cora says that people do call the Royal Military Police monkeys. It's also in the uh, RMP Wikipedia article too. Oggy is Cornish slang for Cornish pasties. Yeah. And Hardacre, Hardacre actually calls him Augie as well as Nick. It's a nickname yeah. that multiple people have probably because, yeah, he's Cornish and they're Cornish pasties. And it's a football chant, isn't it, Sam? Augie, uh, Augie, Augie, oi, oi, oi. Oi, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. We haven't met someone who calls him monkey boy yet. But this feels like something seemingly innocuous that she's dropped in because someone is coming up much later on who is this mysterious person. Possibly. It also kind of reminds me of, I remember her talking about the title she chose for the Tales of Beetle the Bard. Mm-hmm. And she said she hadn't written stories for those titles when she gave Ron the title Babbity Rabbity and her cackling stump. <laughs> she said that it was just a funny name. And then she realized, oh, I actually have to make a story for this. So <laughs> It could have just been that she was having fun with names. Yeah, it could have been. So Robin is starting to look through stuff and being just a little bit nosy and is able to deduce that Strike was ex-police, military police, but it's really kind of funny how bought on some of her guesses are. It talks about how the material inside the files is in a deceptive, difficult to read hand. And his handwriting is mentioned as being difficult to read several times in the series. And I'm wondering if this is... Some kind of metaphor for how emotionally closed off he is because the handwriting feels something about us. Or if I'm just barking mad. Another cute thing in this bit is that his firm organizational structure pleases her own neat and orderly nature. And I'm like, oh, here we go with the similarities between them again. It's fun to see these two people who appear quite different in the beginning start to reveal pieces of themselves where we can see just how similar they are. Mm -hmm. And going back to the handwriting thing, It could just be handwriting, but the metaphor you're suggesting is also possible. I could even take it a little bit further and say that she doesn't seem to have trouble reading his writing in later books. So maybe it's suggestive of those walls coming down. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's also probably a good thing that you can't read his handwriting because when he's taking those notes just to provoke witnesses, they won't be able to tell what he's writing. (laughs) I love it every time he does that. (laughs) So do I. It's one of my favorite things he does. Robin takes one of the confidentiality agreements that she finds, signs it, and personally leaves it on Strike's desk. And I just love how seriously she's taking this, even from this early on. I've always imagined that this is something else that Strike would be impressed by, Mm -hmm. because I feel like he probably would have had her sign one, but in the chaos of the day, forgot or didn't get around to it. More of the things that, you know, Strike finds that he really likes about her. She's really doing a lot to get Strike to like her right off the bat without even really trying. She's not trying overtly to be charming and get on his good side, but she manages to do so anyway. It's just who she is. It's like how J.K. Rowling says she's just one of the most lovable characters ever. She sure is. We're also seeing how observant Robin is at the end of this chapter when she sees his bag in the office and puts everything together and of course comes to the correct conclusion about what's going on in his life. And there's this line that always kind of makes me cringe and laugh at the same time when it says, Robin was disposed to feel desperately sorry for anyone with a less fortunate love life than her own. And I just think, oh, Robin, someone please warn this woman what's coming up in the next few books. 
(laughs) more of that dramatic irony and then lastly just a couple things i love about this final paragraph one she calls him her temporary boss we talked last time how he refers to her as the temporary solution and this is kind of her version of that he becomes her permanent boss but even that is temporary oh i like partners another thing that i love i always seem to forget this little detail that robin is so happy that she's humming to herself and then bursts into song It just kind of makes me sad that we haven't seen more of the side of Robin in so long. And I hope that we do start to see more of that happy Robin come out in the next book. Yeah. You know, I've done some searching into this and I found that there are only two other times in all of the books that have been released where she is either hummed or sang to herself. And one time she was humming Bob Marley after she had found out from Chisel and Lethal White that Strike had said that she was his best. Mm-hmm. And then the other oh. time is after the best mate conversation in Troubled Blood. So yeah. that's Ooh, cute. I, I love the parallel with the best mate conversation because Strike telling her she was his best friend was a gift that made her feel in a way she'd only ever felt after being given her engagement ring. And that's this feeling right now, right? So it's a really neat parallel. I'm a bit depressed thinking about the literal years of stress and misery and terrible sleep that Robin has coming up but you know all's well that ends well right Mm -hmm. I also love that parallel we see her so happy and she doesn't quite express her happiness in the same way in Troubled Blood it's more internal and she's also battling other feelings but to see it here and to know that this is how she felt in that moment is really sweet it is shall we go on to chapter seven I like that we get a lot of the back and forth between them at the beginning in this opening part because it really establishes because so much of the rest of the novel is strikes POV but it really is back and forth in the beginning of the novel setting up the later aspect there you know they're equal protagonists I love the way that this next chapter chapter seven opens strikes description of london is one of my favorites joe does a really great job of making london feel like its own character i'll just read the part that i really like here because trying to sum it up is just not going to do it justice this was the hour when he found london most lovable the working day over her pub windows were warm and jewel-like her streets thrummed with life and the indefatigable permanence of her aged building softened by the streetlights became strangely reassuring. We have seen plenty like you, they seemed to murmur soothingly as he limped along Oxford Street carrying a boxed-up camp bed. Seven and a half million hearts were beating in close proximity in this heaving old city, and many, after all, would be aching far worse than his. Walking wearily past closing shops while the heavens turned indigo above him, Strike found solace in vastness and anonymity. Yeah, I agree. It's a beautifully written passage. You really get the sense of the love and belonging he feels for his home in such a poetic way. And it feels to me like we're getting a glimpse into his very romantic yet broken heart yeah it's quite sad in a way those references to you know wanting to feel like he's at home and stuff actually london is half his home the other half is in cornwall yeah i I found it quite sad in a way there's also just something about how he's thinking that there are other people around him that are also hurting and finding solace I don't know. It just has the sense of feeling less alone. There's also that sort of idea that, you know, it could always get worse. Like other people are hurting much more than him, you know. Well, good thing it doesn't. Yeah. Next up, we have the first mention of the Norfolk commune as being one of the worst places that Strike had ever slept in. So this is in comparison to sleeping on the camp bed. Because while it's not comfortable, it's sure as hell not as bad as that place. And I have to say that I have so many questions about this commune and how slash why it was the worst place that he and Lucy had ever stayed. 
I'm thinking this will come back in a big way somewhere later down the line. I think you're right that we're probably going to learn about it at some point. And I have to say, I am dreading it because I feel like my feelings about Leda will not improve and that it will be heartbreaking. I have my own personal theory about this coming and it's that it's going to be modeled on the children of God cult who were active in the UK in the around the, the right time. Google the children of God cult. It's very dark and very disturbing. Yeah, I don't know if I want to. And yeah, if that is the case, that this is what the commune was modeled on, it, it's not going to be a pleasant read. There's a line here where it says how shopping for the things he needed gave him the familiar feeling of doing what needs to be done and without question or complaints. It reminds me of one of the earlier talks we had during Trouble Blood where, you know, he's a man of action and how doing something and having a plan is part of how he deals with difficult situations. And so I think we're seeing that here. It actually reminds me of a song from Frozen 2 where when you feel like you can't go on, you just have to do the next right thing. I haven't seen Frozen 2, but I agree. I also love this next part where he's noticing all the tidying up that Robin did. And it says, mildly intrigued, he opened the petty cash tin and saw there in Robin's neat rounded writing, the note that he owed her 42 pence for chocolate biscuits. Strike pulled 40 of the pounds Bristow had given him from his wallet and deposited them in the tin. Then as an afterthought, counted out 42 pence and coins and laid it on top. I love this. I think it's really cute. I love this sort of indirect exchange between them and how you can see again that he likes her like against his will. Yeah, I always got the feeling that he wasn't taking it as seriously as maybe she was, but Mm -hmm. because the 42 pence bit was enough, thought he was just like, oh, well, I'll entertain it kind of thing because he likes her. I like that. Me too. Not to get too into my weird handwriting as a metaphor thing, but Robin's handwriting being neat, rounded, clearly readable it's very conventional and sort of easy to understand writing sort of like robin appears to be on surface level at this point but you know we find out strike finds out she has so many hidden depths and talents that aren't even hinted at by what you see on the surface you know what i find really funny though in the american printing the handwriting that they use for strike in the books is the same handwriting that they use for hagrid in harry potter oh no way <laughs> yes it's literally it's the same font they just go for something large and hairy and <laughs> large. yeah guys in england were like right what can they relate to that's big and hairy right got it <laughs> large hairy and cornish <laughs> anyway so strike starts to settle in and begins to carefully examine all of the evidence that bristow has brought to him to review i think it's worth pointing out that it says that bristow's notes were mostly about the runner in hindsight it's a clue showing how much he was trying to focus strikes attention onto jonah and he makes sure to put in an an attempted misdirect about the second runner as well who we know is bristow but he suggests very clearly that it was a car thief to sort of give strike an easy narrative to make sure he won't probe further yeah too bad he has no idea who he's dealing with then there's this line here which i'll also add to the list of clues Whatever the origin of Bristow's preoccupation with the runner, whether because he nursed a secret fear of that urban boogeyman, the criminal black male, or for some other deeper, more personal reason, it was unthinkable that the police had not investigated the runner. That bit stands out to me, that other deeper personal reason that makes me feel like this was something that I should have paid more attention to when I first read it, because there is a deeper meaning. Yeah. That is some clever foreshadowing. Another potential clue, and you guys can tell me if I'm reaching here, but Strike wonders how someone coming in the building would know that Wilson was away from the desk, that Mm -hmm. they couldn't see through the front door to know that he wouldn't be there. 
to me, this is a clue that the person who killed Lula was already in the building. What do you think? Yeah, that's what I thought right when I read it. I'll allow it. Thank you. Next up, we have Strike beginning to get ready for bed, only to be plagued once more by thoughts of Charlotte and what he had left behind the previous night. So he's initially drawn to the good things, like the thoroughly un-Charlotte-like things she had said after that he had lost his leg, like that she didn't need a ring after they got engaged because Strike needed all the money for the business. And then he immediately reminds himself of the bad stuff, like the constant lying and the shifting dates of the pregnancy and the fact that the pregnancy was a lie to begin with. First, I'm just so glad he's going to bed. It makes me so (laughs) tired to read about how tired he is yeah it's like troubled blood levels of exhaustion yeah while he's thinking about charlotte there are a few bits that are really telling there's something that she says to strike after he had attempted to confirm dates don't you dare fucking investigate me don't you dare treat me like some drugged up squatty i'm not a fucking case to be solved you're supposed to love me and you won't take my word even on this really if she has nothing to hide then why be so angry like is there even the slightest possibility she could have been telling the truth and Will we ever know? I'm personally on team the pregnancy wasn't real. But in either case, if it was or if it wasn't, Charlotte is trying to deflect questioning by attacking him, by making herself seem like the victim. I don't know if I'm on a team here because I think you might be right. But ultimately, I think the entire point is that like Strike, we can never know. Mm-hmm. And how can you be with someone yeah. and never know what's true? I guess because everything in all the books is always a mystery to be solved. It's so weird to have something that isn't solved and something yeah. that's left unanswered like this and maybe we will never know yeah and does it even matter whether we even will know because like i mean it's the fact that she lied about it to begin with after all of that was the point yeah i guess it doesn't matter but that is a great point sam because we want everything to be solved we want to know what the truth is in these books and yeah i don't know if we're ever going to know that Speaking of the lies and everything, we kind of touched on this earlier, but he talks next about how the lies she told were woven into the fabric of her being her life so that to live with her and love her was to become slowly enmeshed by lies, to wrestle her for the truth, to struggle to maintain a foothold on reality. How could it have happened that he, who from his most extreme youth had needed to investigate, to know for sure, to winkle the truth out of the smallest conundrums, could have fallen in love so hard and so long with a girl who spun lies is easy as other women breathe and i think we all know the answer Mm -hmm. to this and it's mommy issues and a whole lot of unresolved trauma that's certainly the answer to his question of how it could have happened but it really feels familiar because i've known many people who are in or who are getting out of bad relationships and they question how they could have fallen for it i think it's very normal to ask yourself that question when you've experienced an abusive relationship absolutely I think that part of Strike was always maybe drawn to the challenge of exactly this, of getting through such an enormous web of lies and being the one to see the actual truth of Charlotte and and thinking that he'd be able to. I don't think that she was that far off when she accused him of wanting to solve her. Part of the reason he likes solving things and knowing the truth and trying to get to that truth when she lies so much. Yeah, it could fit with his need to investigate and understand, of Mm -hmm. course, I also see the other side of this where it's Charlotte just not wanting to be held accountable for her behavior. So she's twisting it around like he's doing the thing that's horrible by wanting to know the truth. Yeah. Deny, attack, reverse victim and defender. Something that I found really sad was how Strike doesn't want to tell anybody that he and Charlotte have broken up because he can't face reliving their final argument and then dealing with people's sympathy. So he just deals with it all alone. For me personally, I've totally been there. So I really feel for him here. Breakups really suck. And this one is 
particularly bad. There's nothing worse than telling one person something and then telling someone else exactly the same thing in the same way. Yes. And then not just breakups, but stuff in general, like you sound like a broken record at the end of it. So I get him not wanting to yeah. go through the telling of people and then so on and so forth. I, I, I get it. Absolutely. And this is one of those things that I remember people criticizing him for. They'd say that, oh, he's just a stubborn man who won't accept help. But it's always something that I completely understood. And I can really relate to him here as a very introverted person. One of the worst things is being forced to talk about something that I'm not ready to talk about yet. In fact, I've actually gotten into arguments about this because, you know, they'd get mad that I was upset when they pushed an issue and just, I'm just trying to help, you know? So it makes complete sense to me that he wanted to kind of isolate here to really become comfortable with what happened and to process his own thoughts before having to talk to other people about it. Yeah. I think people see this as unhealthy maybe, but it's exactly what I would need for my own mental health. If I was in this situation, just a little bit of time to myself first. I'm the exact same way. I process things inside too. And I need just need space, right? Yeah. There's also the added element that almost all of his friends and family loathe Charlotte. So if mm-hmm. he goes to them, he's going to have to deal with a whole lot of I told you so and shit talking her just as we see Lucy doing later. And that is the least helpful thing in a situation like this, even though it's very tempting to do. It's like, so they're trying to be supportive, but actually they're just dreaming home that they, they think you've been an enormous idiot up until now, yeah, right? Exactly. It's not really what you want to hear in this situation, right? So I kind of even understand why he didn't even reach out to Nick and Ilsa, to be honest, knowing how Ilsa would have reacted. Yeah, I agree. Wait for the told you so's until you've mentally prepared yourself for them, you know? Yeah, I agree. I would have done the same thing that he does here. It's also another thing that allows him to connect with Robin in these first few weeks after they meet. She's the one person in his life that he doesn't have to explain himself to. And I think that's part of why he likes her company so much. Someone completely disconnected from Charlotte. She has no investment or knowledge. He can be himself with her without having to deal with this whole load of baggage that he's just left behind him. Unconditional acceptance, isn't it? Yeah. And then he falls asleep and we're done with part one. Yeah. Oh, wow. Part one, the meat cute. Yeah, I really like part one. It's really good. It's great. It's a great opening to a novel. It's a great opening to the series. Fantastic. Excellent. Wonderful. I was just going to say that Sam has been kind enough to help us with creating a website. So we're going to have that coming up soon, which is super exciting. Still in the works, but keep an eye out because we're going to have some exciting things coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sam, for helping us with this. Mm-hmm. No, you're very welcome. No, it's all good. It's um, it's exciting. It's good to be a part of it and to build something cool. And thanks for coming on today as well. No, you're welcome. I always love having you on, Sam. Oh, thank you. It's great to see you guys as well. It's good to really nerd out with with everyone and <laughs> other people who, who love it all as much as me. So it, it's great. I, I love coming on here as well. It's a wonderful description of what we do here. Nerd out. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. I loved that you posted on Instagram that picture of Cuckoo's Calling. So I'm like, oh, I know, I know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of my favorite in the series. I just feel like yeah. it's a proper whodunit right yeah. back to mysteries and stuff. And it's my favorite when I started and it, it still is. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for another episode, this time covering chapters one through four of part two. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. 
If you'd like to send us a response or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike in Ellicott Files.